If you would again uh, take out your Bible and let's turn to Genesis chapter 8. And today we'll be reading verses 1 through 22. Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 1 through verse 22. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. The dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him in the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days. And again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove And she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your wives and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you everything, living thing that is with you, all flesh, bird and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth, they be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife, his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of the clean an- some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we enter now into that time 
whereby we hear you speak, as it were, from heaven. To receive your reign and your spiritual nourishment. Grant us, O God, hearts which are prepared to receive this spiritual food. May we, like the psalmist, delight in your word. Cause your scriptures to penetrate to the deepest parts of our being. Plow deeply into the hardened soil of our hearts. Turn over the furrows and plant spiritual seed for our nourishment and our growth in grace. Grant to us eyes to see and ears to hear. That this time spent in your word may be to your glory. We ask this in the wonderful name of our Savior, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you are a Christian... That is, one who is trusting and resting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then you have been brought from death to life. Previously, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we have been made alive and we've been raised up in Christ. Outside of faith in Christ, we would be instruments of unrighteousness. But the Father of Jesus has been transformed, has been regenerated, has been renewed, has been born again. These are just some of the, some of the language which the Scriptures use to describe the new life of the Christian. We have died to sin and to the tyranny of sin, and we have been made alive together in Christ. By faith you have been saved And this is the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. Now this astounding grace of God, His unmerited favor upon sinners such as you and I, this is the goodness of the good news. Undeserving wretches such as you and I, the spiritually dead have been made alive. Those who were surely lost, those who were surely destined for the city of destruction and eternal damnation, have been rescued and redeemed by the blood of the Son of God. What wonderful news this is, is it not? We have been adopted as sons and heirs of a heavenly kingdom, and we've been made partakers of the new covenant blessings in Jesus Christ. Thus, you and I, as Peter states are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, a people who had not been a people, who have now been made God's people, holy and beloved. And the new covenant sign given for inclusion in this covenant family is the sacrament of baptism. This cleansing sign points to the movement from death to life. Uh, The Apostle Paul says that we were buried with Christ and raised with Him. This is demonstrated in the application of the water of baptism. And as a sign and as a seal, it shows forth our engrafting into Christ, our regeneration and the remission of sins. In other words, new life in Christ. The Apostle Peter points out the connection between baptism and Noah's flood. For Noah had come through the water, that is, that he had come through death, and that he stepped off of the ark into new life. And this was accomplished through God's covenant promises. That is to say... The story of Noah and the story of Noah's flood is the story of the gospel in miniature. 
It is a type and a shadow of that which was to come. And it points the Christian to spiritual realities. Noah and his family emerged from the destruction and death of the flood, the wickedness of their generation, the tyrants who walked the earth in that time. And they afterwards became the foundational individuals for new life on earth. In a similar manner, the Christian, by faith in Jesus Christ, has died to sin and the wickedness of our generation and the tyranny of sin and have been made alive and enabled to walk in new spiritual life. Being now members of the kingdom of Christ and heirs of the covenant promises. And so the story of Noah is the story of the gospel in type and shadow. And this, this event was to prepare God's people for the big story of redemption in Christ. Because just as Noah was saved by God's hand and through his covenant promises, so too are all believers in a spiritual sense. Our souls are saved not from literal water, but from the fire of hell by the hand of God and by His promises, which are realized in Jesus, our Savior. Now, as we're reminded that this is a story about rescue, Noah is rescued from the wickedness of his generation. Noah is rescued, actually, even from the flood, death, we should also consider that the original audience would have been familiar with this concept, right? The Israelites, they had just come out of the Exodus. They themselves had just been rescued from bondage in Egypt. And of course, that too is a story of the gospel in miniature, isn't it? And so here we are uh, at the height of, well, actually, let me back up and say this. These themes should be in our mind as we study this section of Scripture, now, if you were here last time, you may recall that we left off at the climax of the flood. Uh, that is that the... the, uh, the fl- and also, this is in the middle of the chiasm. That's the literary structure uh, of, of this whole text. Now, um, at the height of the flood, uh, when the waters had reached their pinnacle and had overcome the whole of the earth, even the mountains had been prevailed over. We read in verse 1, and this is where we begin today, but God remembered Noah. Now God remembering Noah is not simply mental recall, like you remembered where you left your car keys. No, God's remembering Noah is God acting upon his previous commitments. God had established a covenant with Noah. We saw this in chapter 6 and verse 18. Commanding him to enter the ark with his family along with representative animals so that they might be kept alive. God was going to rescue Noah and God is trustworthy and he proves himself to be trustworthy as he causes the waters to recede from the earth. And so as God remembers Noah... and he's acting upon his covenant promises, he causes the wind to blow over the earth and thus the waters to recede. Now, the, the Hebrew word which is translated here for us, wind, is the word ruah. 
which is also the same word that is used for spirit. It's the same word, ruah. And so there's a parallel in this count between the original creation where God, the spirit of God, the ruah, hovered over the waters and the wind, ruah again, blowing over the earth here. And so it is here that God is reversing the flood and will in one sense recreate or really renew the whole of the earth. So just as the springs of the earth had burst forth, the the windows of heaven had opened, this was back in chapter 7, here we see the windows and the springs closed. And thus, we have the great reversal. And so little by little, and it points out continually, the waters begin to go down, to dry up, such that after 150 days, the waters had decreased in their level quite substantially. Now, you'll note again the repetition of the 150 days um, from the front end of the chiasm. There had been 150 days of increasing water. Then at the, at the, at the, uh, then at the point, uh, God reverses course and causes the water to reverse. Now it was another 150 days. And they had come to the point now where the ark had come to rest in the mountains of Ararat. Now, Ararat, uh, which is known in, uh, as ancient Urutu in uh, Assyrian records, was an extensive region which stretches from Turkey in the south uh, to southern Russia in the north. And this is between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Uh, and it would also include northwest Iran. If you have geography in your mind, you're following along. If you don't know geography, well, you'll have to look it up later. But it's a very large geographic area. And so the mountain, which today we call Mount Ararat, it rises to almost 17,000 feet above sea level. And it's located near the border of what is today uh, Turkey in Armenia. Now, it came to be known as the traditional site of Noah's Landing, but it's not certain that the ark actually came to rest on that particular mountain. The tradition for this came about much later during the 11th and 12th century. And by the way, the Bible does not say that Noah's Ark made land, landfall on a particular mountain, but rather that it came to rest in the region of these mountains, literally among the mountains of Ararat. Which is to say that likely Moses was not certain of the exact place, but only of the general region of the mountains in which it came. And and quite frankly, the exact place is not all that important. Uh, The the region, this region is seldom mentioned in the scriptures. It holds no significance in the history or religious life of Israel. It is mentioned here simply to record the history of what happened. There's no uh, religious significance that's placed on that particular place. Which may be informative to us as so many are always looking for where, where, where the Noah's Ark land. Well, you're not going to probably find it. And if you find it, it doesn't really make that big of a difference. And so the, the, the Ark came to rest in the region of these mountains. But as we will see, it took another 72 or so days before the tops of the mountains were exposed. But, but for Noah, this was the first sign of land in nearly a year at sea. 
And this would have been a welcoming sight to him. With all the time spent on the ark, 40 days of rain, the rise and then the fall of the waters, he would have been waiting, he would have been praying. Noah had to be very patient. But now the earth was beginning to dry out. But there was still more time to go. From the time that land first appeared then to the drying of the earth, Uh, being complete was about another five months. More time was to pass on the ark. In verse 6, we see that after 40 days, Noah opened a window on the ark. Now again, this actually is interesting. It echoes God's earlier intention to put an end to all people through 40 days of rain. That is when God opened the windows of heaven. Now here, Noah is opening the windows of the ark. We read in verse 7 that Noah sent forth first a raven. And it says that the raven went out and flew to and fro over the waters until they dried up. In other words, the raven went around uh, over the waters, but it doesn't seem that it ever returned to Noah's hand. It just sort of flew around. Now the text doesn't indicate what the raven's mission was. We can presume that it was similar to the dove's mission. The raven, though, is a stronger bird, able to uh, remain in flight for a long period of time, uh, able to feed on carrion, that is, dead fish and dead animals that may be floating around. Uh, This may explain why the raven doesn't return, doesn't really need to return. And so in verse 8, Noah releases a dove to see if the waters had subsided. Unlike the raven, the dove requires a place to land and to rest for a short time. And so the first time she's released, she returns to Noah's hands. It says, for the waters were still on the face of the earth. Now keep in mind, Noah himself was unable to leave the ark. There's a sense in which he was still imprisoned on this ship. And so he required the use of bird shipmates, as it were, to check on the status of the world. He could not venture out uh, into the world until God allowed him to do so. And so he brought the dove back into the ark. He waited for another seven days. uh, And then he sent her forth again. And this time the dove returned in the evening. And behold, she has in her mouth a freshly plucked olive leaf. Now note here in the Hebrew, it's emphatic on this point. This is amazing. Behold, look, look what she brought back. The water's indeed have receded from the earth. But we might ask, well, what's so amazing about a leaf in her beak? Well, consider, first of all, that olive trees are not ones that typically grow at higher elevations. Uh, uh, Olive trees tend to be sensitive to hard freezes, which would be found at a higher elevation. Although they can be hardy up to 4,000 feet above uh, sea level. Uh, The leaf of an olive tree indicates that the ground really had dried up and had dried to a a point that the olive tree could be found and was now growing. Now, one might wonder how a tree could so quickly produce leaves after this massive flood. First of all, um, olive trees are by a number of accounts incredibly hardy trees. They can withstand a number of different stresses and survive, including being flooded out for a season of time. Now, it is at least conceivable that this particular tree survived 
the flood, and, the, and as the waters receded, it began to produce leaves again. That's at least a possibility. It's also possible that this was a new tree, which had germinated from seed and sprouted a leaf, and the germination period of an olive seed, as it turns out, is 40 days. Of course, any explanation we give is purely conjecture. We simply do not know how this came about exactly. But here is what we do know. We know that a dove left Noah's hand, that that dove returned the same in the evening of the same day, and in her beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And this wonderful sign, this amazing sign, indicated that the waters were in fact retreating, and that life is returning just as at creation, beginning with the plants. Now, this sequence is actually fascinating for another reason. One thing you'll note in Genesis is that up to this point, the narrative has sped along. I mean, we cover centuries, even millennia, very, very quickly, just going through this history. Uh, The months, even in this account, have flown by. But here, in this part of the story, it slows down tremendously. Great detail is given. In fact, Uh, Noah sends out this dove. It returns again to his hand. Uh, There's an olive leaf in her beak. Of course, meaning that the earth was drying out, the plants and trees returning, life was coming back. The earth was being productive again, which reminds us of Genesis 1. God's calling the earth to sprout vegetation and the trees to produce for plants to yield seeds. And so as as this narrative slows down, it seems that we're supposed to pause and ponder with wonder at what was taking place here. This This is truly incredible. Consider with wonder what God has done here in bringing new life to the world. Consider with wonder the new life which God has brought to you. Well, Noah waits again for another seven days. And again, he sends out the dove. But this time, the dove doesn't return. Noah was now assured that the waters had receded and that life would continue on earth. Those who had been in the ark could now safely go free from it. When this all occurs, uh, now verse 13, in the 601st year of Noah's life, in the first month, in the first day of the month, and the waters are dried from the earth. Now notice again the detail of the accounting of time. A new year has dawned for man. A new creation was to be born again. The old has now been cleansed and renewed. The world, of course, was not new, and yet it was new in that it was renewed. There is in this short transition, I think, a hint of what is to come when the world is renewed again, finally and completely in the new heavens and new earth. The world which was destroyed will be brought back to life in the new heavens and new earth. It will be finally and completely perfected in Christ. 
Through Christ all things are being reconciled to Himself, Colossians 1. We wait according to, to His promise for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, 2 Peter chapter 3. And so this is this being, a foreshadow, being foreshadowed here, and yet for Noah, he survived the flood, but this was not a return to the Garden of Eden for him. The world had been cleansed, but it had not yet been perfected. For that, the world must continue to wait. And so Noah had been saved through the flood. Noah had gone from death to life. And so uh, it says, And Noah lifted off the covering from the ark, and he's able to look out, he's able to see that indeed the the ground was dry. But he still waits. He waits for another two months. He waits for permission from God to give him word that he could depart from the ark. And so just as Noah had been instructed to enter the ark, verse 16, he is now instructed to depart from the ark. These eight were to leave the cozy confines of the ship and become the new humanity. They had successfully rode out the storm and the worldwide flood for that long year, and they had done so by the mercies of God. Noah had waited patiently, not stepping one foot out of his sepulcher, as Calvin puts it, until commanded by God. Now notice the end of verse 17, that God commands them to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. This again reminds us of of creation, doesn't it? They were to be fruitful and multiply. Mankind and animals were to multiply on the earth. They were to fill the earth again. And here with this recreation, as it were, of the earth, as the old world had passed away, all the creatures, including man, were to fulfill their original creation mandates. And so the people and the animals were to come out. Noah, along with his wife and their son, their sons and their sons' wives, and all the creatures, all the birds, they were to go out of the, to repopulate the earth. And so he did. They all did. They came out of the ark as had been instructed. And again, you, you note, and we're reminded by the, the narrator of the obedience of Noah. Noah continually did what God told him to do. Each time there were instructions from God, Noah followed them. He did what he was told. I think this again underscores Noah's righteousness before God and is a reminder to God's people of the importance of obedience to the Word of God. And so immediately after leaving the ark, Noah sets about to build an altar to the Lord and offers sacrifices upon it, giving worship to God. God had spared Noah and his family in the ark. And so what does Noah do? He offers worship. He gives thanksgiving to God who had saved him. Now we had seen sacrifices earlier with Cain and Abel, but this is the first time that, in the scriptures at least, that an altar is mentioned. And here worship is specifically offered to the Lord. This is the same language that is used later to describe the worship of the patriarchs who would build altars to Yahweh wherever they were sojourning. So here's Noah building an altar to Yahweh, to the Lord. 
And it says that the, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice. And then, and then makes a promise. The Lord, uh, smelling of course is uh, anthropomorphic language. Uh, that is describing God using human attributes. But what is, in, what is in mind here is that God was pleased with Noah. God was pleased with his worship. And so he makes a pledge. Look at verse 21. <clears throat> it says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Creation has been cleansed from sin and the flood, but the reality is that nothing had changed in terms of the fallen human condition. Humanity was still wicked from birth. Human beings' wills have been affected by original sin from Adam. And yet God says he will not curse the ground because of man. And so the, pl- the, the post-flood world should, in the final analysis, require, as John Calvin calls it, a daily deluge. Nevertheless, the Lord has committed to the forgiveness and to a new beginning. As long as the earth remains, the normal activities of the earth, planting, harvesting, heat and cold, day and night, these will not come to an end. Instead of destruction, the world will continue in a predictable environment. And this promise is not based on man's righteousness. We already see that. It's not because, well, man is now good, so I'm going to do this. God says, I'm not going to to, uh, do away with any of this because I know man's intention is evil. And yet he still promises this. This condition also is only for a time. This is actually indicated by the while the earth remains. While there is an earth, this, then the earth will continue in its predictable way. But there is coming a time when this present age will come to a close as well. But for now, God promises to allow some sense of stability on this earth until that time when Jesus returns and ushers in the fullness of his kingdom. Noah had been rescued. He had come through death to life. And as he, leave, as he had left the confines of his tomb, as it were, in thankfulness he offered sacrifices to the Lord. In short, Noah worshipped God because of the great things that God had done for him. Well, beloved, I want to remind you that as a Christian, you too have been rescued. You and I have been snatched from the pit, as it were. We have been brought out of bondage. And we walk in newness of life, having died to sin. The natural inclination of the transformed heart then, because of what God has done, is to worship Him. In fact, this is what we were created to do. Isn't it? Weren't we created to worship the Lord? As we read the account of Noah's flood, 
Uh, more than simply a fascinating, amazing story of a biblical hero surviving an amazing event, it points us to a greater spiritual reality. It points us to the gospel. For Noah was good as dead without God's intervention. And so were you and I, if God didn't intervene on our behalf as well. Colossians 2.13 reminds us, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive, made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but by God's grace we have been raised up with Christ and have been seated with Him in the heavenly places. And so the movement from death to spiritual life is the story of redemptive history. God has taken undeserving, rotten wretches such as you and I, rebels against Him, and has made us His people. So what should we do? What What this should do is drive us to gratitude. We should be thankful. And we should worship the Lord. I think this is what drove Noah. This is what uh, Noah was driven to. Noah was driven to gratefulness and worship. If Noah thought for one second that somehow he had saved himself. After all, Noah did construct the ark, didn't he? If he thought for one second he had saved himself. Why would he bother to offer sacrifices when he landed? The first thing he does is build an altar and worship the Lord because he understood God had saved him. He did this out of gratitude towards God. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Let us with great gratitude in our hearts give God all the glory And let's invite others around us to do the same. For they too need to trust and rest in the only Savior of men, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that the Spirit of God would give life to the spiritually dead. That they too may join in the worship of the triune God. Let's pray together. Blessed be the God and the Father of all mercies who continues to pour out His benefits upon us. O God, You have called us out of darkness into Your marvelous light. You have justified us. You have sanctified us. And we look forward to that day, O Lord, when You transport us into Your glory, into the new heavens and new earth. You have given us new life. You have brought us out of death. Lord, your blessings fall upon us, breaking forth like mighty waters on every side. You have fed us with the bread of life, your word. We have tasted and seen that indeed, O Lord, you are good. Bless the word we have heard. May it give to us true spiritual nourishment and strength. May we strive and prosper in living out new obedience until we reach the measure of your love, for you have done all things for us. Grant this, dear Father, for the sake of your Son, our Savior, with you and the Holy Spirit, three persons, but one most glorious, incomprehensible, and awesome God. Be all the glory and honor, praise forever. Amen.